Great, great. We, uh, living in Babylon, um, how do we walk in this world as followers of Jesus in a world and in a culture that surrounds us that is hostile to the life of Jesus in us. Um, Pastor Graham will fix that. He'll get it. So how do we do that? How do we, how do we walk in this world as followers of Jesus in a culture that is hostile to the message of Jesus and even as much as it may not make sense to us to the love of God hostile to the love of God well um, we're going to get into some some heavy stuff some deep stuff again today but but a little bit of a spoiler before we before we do I, I would suggest how do we walk in this world as followers of Jesus we walk in the footsteps of Jesus. We walk in this world as Jesus did. Right? Jesus, Jesus' holiness was not some kind of self-righteous indignation or self-righteous, I'm better than the people around me. Jesus' holiness was not because he was following a list of rules and checking it off. His holiness was not because he avoided all the people that, that he thought would taint his, his reputation. Jesus wasn't holy because he was, you know, walked around going, ooh, a tax collector, ooh, a prostitute. But he was holy because he belonged to his Father completely. And there was nothing in this world that could, could taint, tarnish, or poison that belonging to the Father. That connection, that love of the Father. And so Jesus could walk into the darkest and messiest of situations in this world and His holiness was never at stake. You see, the church has often gauged our holiness by how much we hold those we consider unholy at arm's length. And I don't see Jesus doing that anywhere. In the Gospels. Not once. Jesus walked through a dark and sinful and messy world knowing that He belonged 100% to the Father and nothing could tarnish that. And so His holiness was about His relationship with the Father. And His love for people was absolutely sincere. He didn't love them 
until they said yes and he got a, a notch on his Bible belt. He loved them. Period. And so, just a, just a step back for a moment. I think, how do we follow Jesus in a world that is hostile to Jesus? Good starting place would be to learn about Jesus and how he, did, how he walked in the world, right? Following his footsteps. However, today we're going back a long time before Jesus arrived on the scene. And, uh, and so I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. We don't have a ton of time left today, but uh, we're going to try and get through this best we can. Daniel chapter 1. Thank you, Pastor Graham, for wrestling with my computer. Seems like it's going to behave. Um, Daniel chapter 1. We're talking today about culture transformation, that we are sent into the world. We're not called out of the world to go and hide in a bunker. We're sent into the world to bring God's kingdom, to make a difference, to change the world, right? Um, So, Daniel chapter 1, starting at the beginning, verse 1 and 2, says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands with some vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, which is the Hebrew way of speaking of Babylon, to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, Nebuchadnezzar's God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. More going on here than meets the eye. Okay? Um, notice, notice it says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim to the king of Judah, Uh, gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hands and some of the vessels of the house of God. So God gave vessels from his temple, gave them to Nebuchadnezzar to take and put in the temple of his God in Babylon. How many think there might be something going on here that we're not seeing on face value, right? Something interesting going on here. Remember last week, a couple, I think it was a couple weeks ago in our introduction, and we read in uh, Jeremiah chapter 29, and it said, uh, it said, God said, I carried you into Babylon, into exile. So even though it was Nebuchadnezzar that came and surrounded Jerusalem, it was Nebuchadnezzar that, that defeated them. It was Nebuchadnezzar who was the, 
the earthly ruler that was used in this situation, God carried the Jewish people away into exile. Why would he do that? Sometimes God takes us on journeys into places we never expected to teach us things that we could never learn anywhere else. Desert seasons are a part of our spiritual journey sometimes. You ever find yourself in a desert season? Just dry, just, where, God, where are you? And I just feel disconnected and I feel alone and I feel what's going on anyways, right? Am I the only one that has those? No? Okay. And sometimes our reaction is, oh, the devil's out to get me. Maybe. Or maybe God brought you into the desert for a season because there was nowhere else he could get your attention to teach you what he needed to teach you. Right? So, <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar besieges Jerusalem. In 587 B.C., this is historic fact. It's not only in Scripture. It's also, we know this in, in other sources. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came and besieged, surrounded Jerusalem. And when we hear about that, we think, oh, he came, he just boom, 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 broke down the walls, carried the people off. About, you know, a day and a half he was done. No, Nebuchadnezzar came and besieged Jerusalem for 19 months. Over a year and a half. Why? Because Jerusalem was built on a, on a hill. It, was, it had fantastic walls and it was really easy to defend and hard to defeat. And Nebuchadnezzar, even with the greatest military might on the planet at the time, could not easily defeat Jerusalem, so he surrounded them and starved them out. That's what a siege is, right? He starved them out for 19 months. Most of the city, at the end of that time, finally the people, um, Nebuchadnezzar broke through the wall after 19 months, destroyed the walls, destroyed the city, um, and, and we're told here that the, in, our, in our passage that the articles from the temple of God were carried off. And we're told that, you know, it seems like a strange detail, but we're told that because what's going on here is not just a clash of armies. It's not just a clash of kingdoms. But it's a clash of cultures and it's a clash of gods. That's taking place here. All the stories of the exile in the ancient of, of exile in the ancient world, and of uh, even of all the battles and armies and all the stuff, it was all seen through the lens of a battle between your God against my God. Right? And the defeat 
you know, if we go back to the defeat of Pharaoh, where Pharaoh was brought to his knees by ten plagues, right? That story, every one of those plagues represents the, the, the humiliation of one of the Egyptian gods. That the Egyptian armies and the Egyptian nation were being brought to their knees by the God of Israel. <clears throat> and so here's, here's this battle going on and, and these people as they're telling the story they see it as this battle of the gods but it says that Israel's God gave these people into their hands and he gave the articles to Nebuchadnezzar what does that mean? who's the, who's the greater one? the one who gives or the one who receives? And if he gives, he can take it back, right? And folks, even our exile is no different. This is not our journey through this world right now that we live in is not just about different values and different ideas, but it is about a clash of gods. We talked about last week how Satan is the God of this age, right? No matter what form it takes, no matter what form he takes in this world, whether it's the Babylonian God Marduk, I don't mean Marmaduke, the big dog, but, but their, their king God was Marduk, whether it's the Babylonian god Marduk, or whether it is today's gods of greed and power and lust and addiction that dominate, um, you know, that dominate our, our culture and our environment, whether it's, it's you know, things that dominate our, our economy, the, the, the messages in our politics, the messages in our education system, our entertainment world, our advertising media, our social media, our news media, and on and on it goes. Satan is the god of this age and the prince of the air. Two titles he's given. And so most of the driving ideologies behind these cultural forces that we even see today are demonic in origin. And they're opposed to the knowledge of the living God. And so into this story come four guys. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. 
Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Okay, so we have these, these four guys that enter into the story. They're, they're brought in by the chief of the eunuchs. What does that mean? It means there was a guy who was in charge of all the eunuchs. And that means Daniel and Azariah, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were made eunuchs as they were brought into the system. It was part of their way of controlling them, right? Um, they were made eunuchs and they were sent to the University of Babylon for a three-year degree. Training in the literature and the language and the culture of the Babylonian peoples, learning, we will see later in the text, I don't know if, how much we'll be able to, to draw it out with our time, but, but even learning, even as Hebrew young men that were brought into this system, learning um, to be magicians and sorcerers, they were learning the, the arts of the Babylonians. Interesting. Right? So they're brought into, this is not a sanitized version of Babylonian university. This is the real thing. They're being indoctrinated and they're, they're you know, learning the culture, the language, and the, and the literature and the religion and all of the stuff of the Babylonians. Um, so it seems that it seems that um, you know, of all the things that Daniel and his friends had to endure being brought into a strange culture, being made eunuchs. We won't go into the details of what that's all about, but you can guess. Um, being made eunuchs, being, um, being put into this training system that is completely opposed to, to their upbringing, their religion, their faith in God. Of all the things that they had to endure, it seems strange that they picked what they picked to draw a line on. Verse 8 says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Wait a minute. He's, he's been castrated. He's been put into this school where he's learning everything opposed to the teachings of God. 
He's, his mind is being pounded every day with the lies of the world and a, and a, and, and a godless system. And yet, he draws a line on lunch. Right? I don't like the cafeteria. It's not what he's saying. But everything else, Daniel was able to keep his focus on the Lord and keep his mind pure and keep, even though he was learning all of that stuff, keep himself focused and on track. But now he's being asked to put something inside of him that he has no control over. And all, all meat in the ancient world, basically all meat in the ancient world was slaughtered in a temple and was cooked in a temple and was produced as, a, as, an, as an offering to a god. It was true for the Israelites. Most of their meat was all slaughtered in the temple and cooked as, a, as an offering to God. And then they, they ate it. And, but in other cultures, their meat was slaughtered in a foreign god's temple, in a false god's temple, as a, an act of worship. And wine was... They would always pour out it's called a libation a little bit of wine as an offering to the gods and then it sanctified the wine as a as as holy to that god and so daniel is saying i don't want to eat food that's been that is an act of worship to a false god or drink wine which is an act of worship to a false god so this isn't this isn't an issue of the cafeteria, it's an issue of worship. Right? This is a whole other level, whole other issue that's going on here. <clears throat> and so, uh, Daniel, you know, he, he asks for special treatment. Um... In verse 9 it says, Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should, you, why should he see you looking worse than the other men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom, um, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. 
These guys are now not the popular guys in the cafeteria because now everyone else has to eat vegan like they were, right? I don't think they were too popular that day when the guy came in and changed the menu and said, no more meat. You're all going vegan. What is your line? Two issues that we've seen in the last year are people who think that all Christians should have the same social and political opinions. Right? If you're a Christian, you should, you should think this. Um, and this is just not the case. Jesus is not a capitalist any more than he is a socialist. Neither political ideology is right or appointed by Jesus just because one might be more popular among evangelicals. The other issue is that besides Besides whether we agree on lesser things like our political ideologies or not, um, we may all have different tolerance levels of what cultural pressure we're willing or able to put up with. We may all have different lines. And when we assume everyone should think like I do, react like I do, and behave like I do, there's an issue. Okay? But my question for you is, what is your line? We do need to have a line. We do need to understand that we are living in the midst of a culture that that thinks very differently than God thinks, than Jesus thinks. We, we are in a culture that is hostile to the things of God. And how we behave in that situation really, really does matter. Daniel drew his line on worship. When he felt that accommodating the culture was putting him in a position to give allegiance to someone or something other than Yahweh, he said no. That's too far. So do we have the awareness that Daniel had to recognize worship for worship in our culture. Because just like the meat and the wine in that culture were worship, there are activities and mindsets and behaviors in our culture that are worship. And we may not recognize them as such. Is porn 
just entertainment or is it worship to the God of lust? And sacrificing the lives of the people in the videos for the sake of our own pleasure. Is playing the lottery just a bit of harmless thrill-seeking or is it an act of worship to the God of greed that we will trust instead of the God of the Bible? We have to discern what are just cultural experiences and what are actually demonic in origin. Because some of those things in our culture are causing us to put our trust in another God and to seek provision from another God, to seek peace from another God instead of our Heavenly Father. And so how do we sort that out and how do we discern that? We can't make rules for everybody. You know what? We used to do that. And it was really simple when they just said, you don't, you don't smoke, you don't chew, and you don't go with people who do. Right? That was really simple. Just give me the rules and I'll follow the rules and then I'll know what, I, what I'm not supposed to do. I want to suggest to you that's the immature way to follow Jesus. The mature way is to take responsibility for my own life, my own decisions, my own perception of the world, and say, how am I going to navigate the culture that I live in and, and remain a dedicated follower of Jesus every step of the way? And as we do that, we need to know what do I do with cultural things. And I want to suggest to you, we didn't get to this last week, but I want to suggest to you that, that our response to culture can be one of three things because there are some things in culture that are not, they're not bad. There are some things in culture that are terrible. And there are some things in culture that are redeemable. And as we navigate this, we need to know what are the th some things that are coming at me from culture I just absolutely need to reject. Right? If you ride in my car with me, and I've been sometimes enjoying the new Bounce 104.9 because it's got, you know, music from when I was a kid. Um, but if you're riding in the car with me and I'm listening to the radio there are times when I just have to turn it off. Because there are times when the song is just, just fun and bouncy and enjoyable, and there are times when the song is communicating something that is poisoning my spirit, and I need to say no. Boom. I don't know how many times Pam and I have started a Netflix series and we get half an hour into the first episode and we're like, nope. I don't think so. The premise looks interesting, but I'm not watching that. Right? There are some things that we just need to reject. And we need to feel okay with rejecting them. Not feel like we, we've got to be apologetic for it. 
but we just say no. Not for anyone else, but for me. I reject that. And then there are some things that, that we honestly can receive. You know what? God made humankind in His image and in His likeness. And He said, it is very good. Now, shortly after that, we rebelled, we sinned, and sin tarnished and messed up the image of God in us. But somewhere underneath that muck and that mess in every human being is the jewel of God's likeness and image. And sometimes out of that jewel comes something beautiful from godless people. There are times when we can look at beauty and culture and hear a poem and be moved and stirred even though it didn't come from a follower of Jesus. There are times when we can watch a movie and it brings us to tears and touches us in a deep place because the message it's communicating is a message that all of humanity can relate to. There are things that we can receive from culture. And there are some things that in and of themselves, um, you know, that, that, that the way they're used in culture might be, might be pretty messed up sometimes, but we can take and use for the glory of God and redeem them. Like Facebook. Right? Sometimes, some days on Facebook, it's just like, must be full moon. Because all the vile garbage of humanity just is spilling everywhere. Right? But is it possible to take Facebook and redeem it and use it for the glory of God? We are right now. We're being streamed on Facebook and the, and the Gospel, the message of hope of Jesus is going out on Facebook, right? I want to throw out a, a controversial example. Halloween. So some people, um, a lot of Christians, really just right on the face of it, Halloween is demonic. Halloween is evil. It comes from, you know, pagan sources and blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to get into that today. That's a whole other conversation. But I want to say that I have a friend who um, every Halloween makes three pots of chili and three big carafes of hot chocolate and sets up in his front yard and every family that walks by he serves the adults um, chili and hot chocolate and he gives the kids candy and he loves on his neighborhood because that's what Jesus called him to do. To be a light in a dark place. So he's taken something that, yeah, there might be some evil stuff attached to it, but he's 
redeeming it. And he's using it to be a, a light of transformation in his community. Wow. Beautiful. Right? So there are things in our culture that we need to reject, things that we can receive, things that we can redeem. That's worth the price of admission right there. But what Daniel and his friends do as they say no to something in the culture, to worship, they do so with incredible respect. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Aretha Franklin. Right? Um, they do so with incredible respect. It's interesting that when Daniel goes to his supervisor and says, he doesn't say, I'm not doing this. He says, may I please not do this. Right? He comes with respect. He asks. Um, and it says that his, his supervisor... What does it say? Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. Now, that wasn't just, I don't think. I'm reading a little bit into the text here, but I don't think that was just because God sprinkled some pixie dust on him and he just thought nice thoughts about Daniel. I think it's also because Daniel had a pattern of acting respectfully towards his supervisor. I think that he had won favor and compassion in the eyes of his supervisor because of his behavior. And folks, I don't care what it is you and I are disagreeing with in our culture, we don't ever need to be nasty or unkind in doing so. We can disagree respectfully. And we must do better Going back to Facebook, we must do better in public spaces like social media at how we disagree with people who disagree with us. And to do so with kindness and respect so that they will show us favor and compassion and hear the words. Most of the time, non-Christians can't hear the words that Christians are speaking because they're Behavior is speaking so loudly their words are getting lost. Right? But because of Daniel's courage and respectful attitude, God blessed him and gave him favor. And Daniel actually effects change in the culture. He changes... Babylon University cafeteria by how, not just what he does, but how he does it. And now not only was he given permission to act a certain way, but he shaped the whole culture. Now none of the guys in his class of 83... 583, that is, B.C. None of the guys in his class of 83 
are worshiping false gods by what they're eating and drinking. Wow. That's pretty amazing. Can you imagine if just by the way we handled our conflict with culture, the people around us actually began to listen and their lives were changed? Wouldn't that be kind of like Jesus? I have a whole other point that we don't have time for. I'll put, uh, I'll put it in the uh, digging deeper that I send out tomorrow. How's that? All right. Let's stand. Thank you, Lord. We, uh, here it is, faithful in the small things, trusted with big things. I love my country. You know, you could have been born in Cambodia. could have been born in North Korea. But today we find ourselves, even those who are born in other countries, we have a number of them in the room today, we find ourselves in this blessed nation. It's not a perfect nation. A lot of times it's not even a godly nation. But it is a blessed nation. I love my country. And God has called us, folks, to live amongst the lost the confused to live amongst those who stumble in the dark and don't even know what makes them stumble as it says in Proverbs 4 but to do so in such a way that we are not persecuted for our belligerence and our rotten, stinking attitude, but we're persecuted for being followers of Jesus. And even in that, we are so gracious and so kind that the world can't help but listen to us. And it starts with us, like Jesus, having our hearts so committed to the Father that nothing can sway us. 
and having our hearts so set on loving the people around us sincerely that they will actually listen. So as we finish, I want to finish the song that I was actually going to ask you to play that, so that's perfect. We're on the same, same wavelength. Just to sing, Worthy is Your Name, just the chorus of this, of this song. And to lift up our hearts as worship to Jesus. To commit ourselves again to be fully His, only His, in the midst of our culture and to make a difference where God has planted us. Worthy is your name, Jesus. You deserve the praise. Tell them this morning, you deserve the praise. Hallelujah. Worthy is your name, Jesus. You deserve the praise. Worthy is your name. Oh, worthy is your name, Jesus. You deserve the praise. Worthy is your name. Worthy is your name, Jesus. You deserve the praise. Worthy is your name. Father God, as we close this service today, we worship you, we honor you, we thank you. We, we, Lord, you're our everything. We, we belong completely to you and to no one else. God, we pray today for our nation, for Canada. God, I believe there is a prophetic calling on our nation that you have called our nation to be a voice of life and hope to the world. You have strategically placed our nation as, as having a voice that is respected and listened to. And you have strategically placed um, the nations within our nation, God, so that the gospel can go to all the nations. You have strategically placed us as a launch point for the hope of Jesus into this world. God, I pray for our nation that you would turn our nation and the hearts of our leaders back to God. I pray, God, that you would cause your church, your people across our nation to rise up in the name of Jesus. As, as people dedicated to you above all other things, and that, God, we would live our light and be light to those who live in darkness around us. God, I pray in the name of Jesus that we, your church, would be the salt and the light you've called us to be in our nation. God, I pray that there would be a sweeping move of your spirit that would move across our nation, that would cause a revival of the, of the hope of Christ in our nation, and that, God, you would do something so new and so fresh that, God, we would truly be able to take that to the world. God, I pray that you would move among your people. In Jesus' powerful name we pray and everyone say, Amen.